The question of the existence of a soul and where it may go after death has been around for ages, and some claim to have seen and spoken with spirits from beyond the grave. Can we really believe our eyes and ears, or could there be a simpler and earthbound explanation? Hey there, and welcome to You Totally Made That Up. This is a bi-weekly history podcast that tells you the wildest, craziest, most bananas true stories from way back when, with a catch. They have to have some sort of weird, woo-woo, paranormal, supernatural element to them, but you heard me right. They are true stories, even if those parts are only true to the people that live them. Basically, the kind of stories that make you think someone must have totally made them up. My name is Nash, and you've already heard from my co-host Tiff in the intro. This is part two of our adventure into ghost stories that have, as you may have guessed from said intro, a down-to-earth explanation to them. Spoiler. But they're fun stories. And in part one, which I hope you already listened to, you heard about the first documented haunting in America. And the one Tiff's about to tell you about, well, I shall quote, it's a tale of Georgian ghostly goings-on, a possessed child, an alleged poisoning, the man behind the English dictionary and the world's first media circus. I mean, come on, does it get much better than that? So kick back, enjoy, and let's get ghosted. What do you got for us, Tiff? I've got some scandal, 18th century style. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're, we're going to talk a little bit of incest, of a sort. Well, Jesus. <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> and ghosts. So, you know, we've got some stuff. The trouble all starts in 1757. So, you know, we're pretty close as far as time-wise for our stories. And we're focusing on a gentleman by the name of William Kent. And he's married and he's very, very happy with his wife, Elizabeth. He is a money lender and he operates a post office. She comes from a family of grocers. So, not too bad. And they are in love. Like, just bliss. They're so happy together. They recently moved into a new place. She's ready to pop with their first child. You know, I mean, life's good. Until suddenly it's not, and Elizabeth dies in childbirth. Thankfully, though, her sister Frances, a.k.a. Fanny, was there to pick up the pieces. She had been staying with them to help take care of her pregnant sister, and, you know, she had planned to be there to assist with taking care of the house after the baby was born. After the birth, she cares for the newborn son and for the grieving William. But sadly, soon after that, the son dies, and now William is alone. Well, he's not quite alone because Fanny sticks around, and she serves as a housekeeper for him and a shoulder to cry on, and then... Eventually, you know, a a bedfellow, (laughs) as it so often happens in, you know, movies and all those good dramas, the two soon became lovers, which I hate that word. I don't even know why I let myself write that word in there. Whatever. They fell in love. I hate lovers, too. It's like my lover. Lovers. (laughs) They fell in love. Okay. (laughs) So things are going well again. He's not stuck in his grief. He can still have a happily ever after. 
except no, he cannot. And this is where the incest comes in. You know, we're not too far into this and we're already getting there. Canon law from the Anglican church prohibited marriage to a dead spouse's sibling. And this is especially after childbirth because of the belief that the two became one through marriage and then shared the same blood. So if the husband goes and bangs his dead wife's sister, he's now banging his own sister. No. <laughs> and no. Well, I'm not saying it's a good look. It's not a good look, but. No. It mm -mm. Yeah. It's, it's this whole incest of in-laws is a thing. It is a thing. You know how you disappear down those rabbit holes from time to time? This totally took me down a whole thing, and I, I had to look into it. So it can also be known as affinity and is actually looked at in several varieties of religious sources. There's Mosaic Law from the Hebrew Bible, and it's in Leviticus. There are prohibitions on sexual relations between a couple in a consanguineous relationship, and there are prohibitions on a number of affinity relationships, which is like, you know, connections through blood. So, and I mean, these include, and some of these make sense. Some of these are like, yeah, duh. You know, there's, let's see, father's wife, father's brother's wife, brother's wife, wife's sister, daughter-in-law, woman and her mother. It goes on and on and on. Marriage to a brother's widow is prohibited, but not to a deceased wife's sister. They did have like a little kind of clause in there that allowed it in certain circumstances. The Romans, there's Roman civil law that prohibited marriages within four degrees of consanguinity, prohibited any marriage between parents and children, either in the ascending or descending line ad infinitum. And of course, we all know the story of Caligula, and he just kind of said fuck it to all that, though, but we can ignore him. And then there's the Catholics, and they've gone back and forth a little bit, you know, throughout the histories, not in allowing incest, but just in how to regulate it. Now, at this point, it stands between four degrees of affinity, or just basically counting back four generations to a common relative. That's like the minimum that you're allowed for, you know. For you inbreeding. Want. I mean, I call it more <laughs> inbreeding than incest is what I label it as. Right. I mean, I mean, not parent to child or siblings, blood siblings, but I mean, in when you get into in-laws and stuff. Mm-hmm. I thought I, I was under the impression that that was fairly common. That like, if you're a single dude and your brother dies, that you you're you are responsible. Not I'm not saying to necessarily marry them, but that you're that's part of your job as a man is to help take care of his family. Right. And I did see a couple of things because I had looked that up because that's what I heard too. Like, okay, yeah, you you know, your brother goes off to war and dies and now you end up marrying his widow and taking care of his children or whatever. But there were certain circumstances where, yeah, they could do that as long as there were no children or certain circumstances where you could do that, yes, because there are children. That got a little confusing. But the most important one here is the Anglicans who went by what was written in the Book of Common Prayer. And that actually contains a table of kindred and affinity and prohibited the marriage to his wife's sister. That actually continued until 1907, when the deceased wife's sister's marriage act changed the prohibition, <laughs> allowing such marriages. And then later, in 1921, 
there is the deceased brother's widow's marriage act. And I, <laughs> I just love that they had to like have these specific things to change that so that you could marry your dead wife's sister if that came to be an issue. I mean, I get trying to keep incest from happening. We already know what happens when the family trees don't branch out. You know, hello, Habsburgs. <laughs> yep. But this was very specific and kind of crazy. So, you know, now we head back into our story of our dear Fanny and William, forbidden lovers. <laughs> now, they do separate for a while because they're like, this is wrong. We can't do this. This is going to ruin our lives. Our family is going to be unhappy. You know, we, we've got a we've got a part. He ends up giving up his businesses and he moves to London. She moves back home, but they find that they can't be apart too long. They just care too much for each other. They keep in touch through letters and eventually they decide to just give in. And he says, all right, come to London. It's a big place. We'll kind of disappear into the crowd. We'll just go with it. And it, it's really not a bad plan. And it does work for a little bit. William gets back into the money lending business. Now he's got his lady with him. And they're passing as a married couple. You know, they're not going out there and advertising it, but people just look at them. They look at their situation and they assume, oh, Mr. and Mrs. Kent, they, they must be married. Until Fanny's brother writes a letter to their landlord who had believed them to be this married couple. And he outs them. And the landlord is basically like, you son of a bitch, get the hell out of here and evicts them. And then on top of that, he refuses to pay back a loan that William had provided to him. They go to church. They're asking for prayers. They're asking for community help. In the meantime, he did have some rights as a moneylender, and he ended up having that landlord jailed to, I don't know, prove a point. It didn't change their eviction. Imagine that. But they move forward. And they end up meeting Richard Parsons. And sometimes in, in a couple sources, they do say that his name was William. But I'm going to go with Richard just to avoid confusion since we're already talking about William Kent. So he hears that they need a place to stay. And he offers them a space in his home on Cock Lane. Parsons. Time is, out. Yes. I just, I just want to be clear. We've got Bill and Fanny living in Dick's place over on Cock Lane. That is absolutely correct. <laughs> I just wanted to get it straight. Now, at this point in history, I don't know if this came up in your research. Was Fanny the word? Did it mean what it currently means to our friends across the pond? Because Let me Google. <laughs> are you going to Google that? Okay. <laughs> that what the etymology, when that nickname, because to my understanding... Here in the States, Fanny is a nickname for your butt. But across the pond, Fanny means a lady's naughty bits. Right. A few moments later. Oh, here we go. Buttocks. 1920, American English. From earlier British meaning vulva. 1879. All right. So <laughs> we weren't quite at the point where. No. Okay. Is not naughty. Not yet. Not yet. It's gonna be. Yeah. All right. So they're all shacked up at Cock Lane. Yep. Cock Lane. It's the place to be. So Richard Parsons, he's, he's a drunk, but he's a respectable drunk. 
you know, he, he works, he serves as a landlord and people don't necessarily like him, but they don't hate him either. They're just like, oh, that's, that's Richard. And he's kind of a dick. And the house was in an okay part of London. It used to be kind of a nice area, but now it's just kind of falling away as nicer areas pop up. It's, it's okay. Let's just say things are, things are okay for Richard and for the Kents. So Richard did struggle a little bit financially, and he ends up getting a loan from William. And I don't really get what is up with giving loans to your own landlord. I don't really get how this whole transaction plays out. He did this before. It didn't go well. He had to have the other guy jailed. But whatever. He's a moneylender. I'm not. So I'm assuming he knows his business. So he loans Richard 12 guineas. And they have this deal for him to be paid back one guinea per month. Some time passes. It's not a lot. It's just a few months. And there's a wedding that's out of town that William and Fanny have been invited to. William makes plans to attend. However, Fanny cannot go because she's gotten knocked up. William, being a good dude, he makes arrangements to have her cared for while he's gone. And Richard has a daughter named Elizabeth. She's 11. She lives in the home. And so it's determined that she's going to stay with Fanny. She's going to share the bed with her, keep her company, keep her safe, keep her warm. I I don't know. It's just she's going to be there. She's going to be hanging out with her. Well, what about the baby? The other baby? That baby died, remember? Oh, that's right. That baby died. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So she, they both died in childbirth. Okay. Gotcha. Sorry. I missed that. I missed that. She died in childbirth. The child died later. Like soon after, like not, it didn't live very long. It didn't say exactly how long, but it just said that the child died. So now little Elizabeth, who a lot of people referred to as Betty, you know, she's just, she's very, very sweet. And she gets along with Fanny. Things are going well. So well that Fanny decides that she needs to reveal her little secret to Betty. And she tells her that we're not actually married that he was married to my sister, but we're in love. And so she assumes that everything's going to be okay. And now this is where the ghost comes in. While William is away at this out-of-town wedding, and while Fanny is there pregnant and alone, just hanging out with Betty, the haunting begins. There's scraping and scratching noises. There are taps on the walls. And these noises persisted throughout the night. Now, there was a cobbler that lived next door. And there was some construction going on in the street. And so it was all, oh, that's what's going on. That's, it must be noises from the neighboring businesses and from those workers. But these noises continued to happen even when those people weren't there. So clearly, there's a ghost. I don't know what other explanation there could be. Uh, no, of course not. Of course not. And it's around this time when someone else actually comes to the home and witnesses a ghostly apparition that goes up the stairs. This was a friend of Richard Parsons who had come over and immediately was like, nope, and took off. So William comes home from this wedding and he's told all about this ghost and how things are going at the house. And he's like, this, this is terrible. I've got to, we've got to get out of here. We are moving out. It's been nice. Thank you very much. They leave and the noises stop for a while, but then they do start up again shortly after and they're focused around little Betty. 
she says that she's able to identify the spirit and it's believed that it was the original Mrs. Kent, Elizabeth, who was not happy that her husband was getting it on with her sister. So now Fanny and William move out of the Parsons house. They move into a temporary housing that's also kind of a shitty place, but they know it's temporary until they can figure out what their next steps are going to be. And it's while they're there that Fanny becomes ill. She starts having a fever. She's got all these things going on. And January 25th, 1760, she's visited by a couple of physicians. And it's determined that she is showing symptoms of smallpox. So she works quickly to settle her affairs. She makes sure that she's got a will, that William is going to be her beneficiary. And she really flies through all this and gets it all done, thankfully, because she ended up dying February 2nd. Now, there is a little bit of a break in time here, but you don't have to worry about Mr. William. Yeah, he lost his original wife and child. And then, yeah, he lost Fanny while she was pregnant. But by 1761, just a year later, he became a successful stockbroker and is remarried. Not to another sister. (laughs) There were no more sisters in that family that wanted to marry him. So time's passed. Life moves on, except suddenly little Betty Parsons starts to get bothered by some kind of a spirit again. What could possibly be happening? Well, thankfully, this spirit responds to yes-no questions. One knock for yes, two for no. Is it Elizabeth again this time? No. Elizabeth has, whatever, passed through the veil, gone on to follow the light. This time, it's our dear Fanny. She's haunting them. Now, why would she haunt them? Because she was murdered. She didn't have the symptoms of smallpox. She was murdered by arsenic. You know who did it? Her dear, not husband, Mr. William Kent. By this time, two years have passed since Fanny's death. It's January of 1762. And poor little Betty, she's having fits. She's having convulsions. She's bothered by knocks and scratches. All from Fanny, who is seeking vengeance and attention for the wrongful death of her and her unborn child. They have a few seances performed. Richard Parsons goes to a Methodist preacher and has him come to the home and actually confirms the haunting. And not just one preacher, too. They took apart parts of like the frames on the doors and parts of the walls to make sure that there weren't any cats in the walls that could be the source of the scratching. And they didn't find anything. So, of course. (laughs) How have cats on the walls come up again on this podcast? (laughs) I don't know, but I, I loved it when I found that. Y'all got to listen. Y'all got to listen to the episode. Look for the one in the description. It's called, I think it's called Licking and Cursing. You got to listen to that and mm-hmm. you'll understand exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. Carry on. Sorry. That's okay. But nope, they didn't find any cats or if they did, they maybe they were already mum- mummified, whatever it was. The only explanation anyone could come up with was that it was the ghost of Fanny. And this story spread. William was suspected of murder. And of course, he wants to clear his name, so he goes to the house. He brings along the physicians who had treated Fanny and a couple other witnesses, and they decide to participate in a seance. I'm going to quote here, because there's this wonderful little story about, it, uh, about what happened. They were warned that the ghost was sensitive to disbelief and told that they should accord it due respect. When the seance began, a relative of Parsons, Mary Fraser, ran around the room shouting, Fanny! Fanny, why don't you come? Do come, pray Fanny, come. Dear Fanny, come. 
When nothing happened, Moore told the group the ghost would not come as they were making too much noise. He asked them to leave the room, telling them that he would contact the ghost by stamping his foot. About 10 minutes later, they were told the ghost had returned and that they should re-enter the room. And then he started going through a list of questions. Are you the wife of Mr. Kent? Two knocks. Did you die naturally? Two knocks. By poison? One knock. Did any person other than Mr. Kent administer it? Two knocks. After more questions, a member of the audience exclaimed, Kent, ask this ghost if you shall be hanged. He did so, and the question was answered by a single knock. Kent exclaimed, Thou art a lying spirit. Thou art not the ghost of my fanny. She would never have said any such thing. So he storms out. He's like, this is, this is bullshit. But I mean, this story is just too good to not be spread. I mean, this is, this is amazing. Soon, Cock Lane is getting a lot more traffic. People want to be on Cock Lane. And the street is getting so crowded that the police actually have to try and like regulate the crowd and people that are coming to see the home, to witness the paranormal goings on, to participate in the seances. I mean, even Prince Edward, Duke of York, came to check it out. So the Lord Mayor finally is like, all right, we, we have to find a way to make sure that traffic is moving along, that people can get through here safely because this is just too crowded. And a few more weeks continue to pass and the story is still really sensational. They're holding these seances pretty regularly and sometimes the ghost responds, sometimes it doesn't. So far though, nobody has been able to find any mysterious behavior or any reason to fully doubt. You know, there's, there's just no evidence that this isn't true. That is until February 1st, 1762, when another seance is held. Those in attendance include Lord Dartmouth, a lady-in-waiting, a matron from a hospital, Bishop John Douglas, Dr. George Macaulay, Captain Wilkinson, And there's a lovely little side note about Captain Wilkinson, that he had attended one seance armed with a pistol and a stick, the former to shoot the source of the knocking and the latter to make his escape. (laughs) Sadly, on that instance, the ghost had remained silent. Damn it. (laughs) Also in attendance, we've got James Penn, we've got John Moore, and then Dr. Samuel Johnson. And for any of you who are not English majors, you might not be quite as familiar with that last name, but he is pretty significant in (laughs) courses that focus on Shakespeare or general British literature. So here's kind of a, a quick little rundown on him. He was really, really intelligent. He was the son of a bookseller. He wrote translations, but he's mostly discussed for two things. Number one, the Johnson Dictionary, which, and I'm quoting here, easily ranks as one of the greatest single achievements of scholarship. It was not the first dictionary that was ever created, but it was unique, and it was the most commonly used for the next 150 years until the Oxford English Dictionary was released in 1928. And then there's his works on Shakespeare. He published in 1765 the plays of William Shakespeare in eight volumes, and he added notes. This was significant because he basically translated the plays into a version that he felt was closest to the original, and this is based on his analysis of manuscript editions. He added corresponding notes that allowed readers to clarify the meaning behind many of Shakespeare's more complicated passages and examined those that had been transcribed incorrectly in previous editions. So he's a pretty, you know, he's kind of a big deal. He wrote about politics also. He reviewed other works. 
But on top of all that, he had some other hobbies, and one of those was an interest in ghosts. According to one source, for a time he was extremely interested in the subject of ghosts. He was so interested in them that he spent several nights in an abandoned house to see if he could meet one. Apparently, he didn't. But he hears about the fanny ghost on Cock Lane, and he figures, hey, you know, that's actually not too far from here. We should go check it out. And so he does. And this turns out to be a pretty great thing for William Kent. So about 10 o'clock at night, the gentleman met in the chamber, and this is the area where Betty was supposed to be disturbed by this spirit. Now, she had been put to bed. Like, there were several women who were in charge of making sure she was safe and she was okay. And they ended up sitting there for about an hour with nothing happening. They're like, all right, this is pretty boring. They go back downstairs. They talk to Richard. And he gets interrogated. They're just like, what's going on here? There's supposed to be a ghost. We're in the right spot. And Richard's like, I don't know. I don't know. This is totally real. This is totally happening. I don't know what could possibly be wrong. While they're going through this interrogation, they get called up to Betty's room because those ladies that were in charge of making sure that she was okay say that they're hearing knocks and scratches. And then Betty says that she feels the spirit like a mouse upon her back. They continue to be a little bit suspicious and they tell Betty, okay, hold out your hands in front of you, in front of everybody here so we can all see you. We just want to see what happens then. And quote, from that time, Though the spirit was very solemnly required to manifest its existence by appearance, by impression on the hand or body of any present, by scratches, knocks, or any other agency, no evidence of any preternatural power was exhibited. And Dr. Johnson ultimately concludes, The opinion of the whole assembly that the child has some art of making or counterfeiting a particular noise, and that there is no agency of any higher cause. Turns out, He's right. All the ghostly scratching and knocking noises had been Betty's work. She actually had hidden a small wooden board in the hem of her clothing so that she could take it out to do her tappy noises or scratch on the walls or furniture whenever she was prompted to do so. Now, why would this little child do this? I don't know, but that's a smart kid right there. <laughs> right? I know. I mean, they're, they're framing this guy for murder. They're ruining his reputation. Well, this goes back to that loan of 12 guineas from Kent to Parsons. And in 1761, Kent had sued to get the last of the loan repaid, which was three guineas. And Parsons was not happy about that. He wanted revenge. So using his knowledge of Kent's situation with his deceased wife's sister, he ended up convincing little Betty, his wife, one of those preachers, and two other people to all go in on the scam. Can you Google what is three guineas in today's money? Yeah. Because that seems fucking ridiculous. <laughs> if you'd said like 30 guineas, I'd be like, okay, that might be a chunk nowadays. But three? A few minutes later. What's this? Okay. Oh, page not found. Fuck you. Many, many minutes later. I'll try to find it later. Don't worry about it. Okay. The ladies found the answer. Three guineas in 1760 had the same buying power as $608.68. Presently, as of this recording, 
1 United States dollar equals 0.92 euros, or 0.77 pounds. So perhaps this guy wasn't so much of a dick after all, depending on your perspective. Alright, back to the show. The point is, this is a lot to go through if he'd been paid back the majority of the debt. Right. You know what I mean? I think he would just let it go, especially since he was well off. Yeah. Right. Especially because he did receive all of the money from Fanny's will. And, you know, she she didn't do too bad for herself. And he also had what he whatever he had received from his actual wife after she had passed. So, yeah, and he's a moneylender. He's a stockbroker. He's not doing too bad. But he did. He did go back. He sued Parsons. Parsons wasn't happy, wanted revenge. So he, like I said, he was saying he gets all of these people involved. There's five of them all together, plus little Betty. And they were tried. And the jury only took 15 minutes to reach a verdict of guilty for the five defendants. They were convicted and the sentences varied from jail time to hard labor to paying fines to Kent, which were way more than a couple of guineas. So he did well, like on every part of this, as you can see. Parsons, he claimed to be innocent the entire time. He and his wife, they just were like, no, 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 we're totally innocent. Even though little Betty was like, yeah, they made me do it. (laughs) She totally sold them out. Parsons, he ended up being sentenced to two years of imprisonment, and he ended up having to also stand in the pillory, which is, you know, that block of wood where it's got the hole for your arms and for your head, and you have to just stand there and be embarrassed while everybody stares at you or Uh throws food at you. (laughs) Uh He had to do that three times on Cock Lane. And I just really like having to say Cock Lane because I'm a child. So he stood there March 16th, March 30th, and April 8th. And people took pity on him. They, instead of treating him like they did the other criminals that had to do that, they actually were kind to him and they took up a money collection in his name. So, like I said, he was the respected drunk and people were totally cool with him trying to frame somebody else for murder. I mean, I'm never going to fault somebody for trying to stick it to the rich. The guy that has plenty has everything, but it's still just being trying to put the screw to somebody who has less. But the murder thing was a little much. Right, right. You know, they pushed it maybe a little too far. Maybe, maybe the little ghost could have knocked once or twice for something a little less harsh. Not something so bad. They could have, they could have just gone with messing with his reputation not murder but that's what they did and i want to end this with a little quote about johnson because he's a very very smart guy but like i said he was pretty open-minded about the supernatural and he really really wanted to see a ghost so he said if a form should appear and a voice tell me that a particular man had died at a particular place and a particular hour a fact which I had no apprehension of, nor any means of knowing, and this fact, with all its circumstances, should afterwards be unquestionably proved, I should, in that case, be persuaded that I had supernatural intelligence imparted to me. He wanted it to happen. He also at least had standards. Right. (laughs) He wanted it to happen. I still love the guy with the gun and the stick. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) That is great. 
So next time you go to a seance, bring a gun and a stick. That way you are prepared for multitude of situations. <laughs> I don't know. I was trying to think if there was something that we could learn from this. And the gun and the stick maybe seems like the best, <laughs> the best thing we can take away. That and being smart enough to have a little wooden thing in the hem of your skirt. That is Fox sister shit though, right there. We've got to do an episode on the Fox sisters. We've been dodging going full force into spiritualism for a while. So the, it's going to keep following us until we do the Fox sisters. But that is, that's their level of trickery. Mm -hmm. That's pretty smart. I mean, even though now we know that the kid probably didn't come up with it herself, whoever came up with it, that's very smart. Yeah. Who's going to feel on the leg? I mean, you're going to probably look and see where different stuff is that's out in the open but who's going to check who's going to think to check and feel the hem of a kid's skirt you're just not right. going to do it right so yeah so that's the story of scratching fanny the ghost of cock lane i'm gonna say it as much as i can it's art it gives me a giggle <laughs> so there you go yeah you got your two ghost stories that were sensational in their areas at the time Mine cannot beat Scratching Fanny on Cock Lane. Not, I mean, entitled. It can't beat it. Both of these, you know, dead wives. We have dead wives. We have dead babies, I'm sorry to say. But a lot of commonality overlapping and suspicion of murder. Yeah. How about that? How about that, folks? Take a gun and a stick to a seance. Can't beat that advice. Just make sure that you've got your concealed carry license, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't want anyone to get in trouble. Don't come back to us. <laughs> hey, y'all. Remember when I said in the first part how if we were a little short with Tiff's story that you get another to round out the episode because we didn't want to shortchange you? Well, that's what happened. So you're getting a third ghost hoax story courtesy of yours truly. We're on our own for this one, though. Tiff couldn't make it. But we can do this. Other podcasts just have one host. I mean, I can do this, right? Yeah? Hey, we'll find out. Okay, on to the story. Now this one I hadn't heard of before, so maybe it'll be new to you too. And I found it pretty fascinating. I had it bookmarked because there's an interesting legal aspect of it that actually only got resolved in recent times. So, I am about to tell you the story of a ghost who got murdered. Usually it happens the other way around, I know. But there was an inquest and a trial, and most of the info I'm going to share. And I've got a nice stack of sources for you. But the primary source for me and everyone else are the court transcripts. Thank you, Old Bailey, for putting all of this cool old-timey stuff online. I take you to England, London, the Hammersmith District, late 1803. There had been a ghost hanging around for a little over a month. Quote, the ghost was reported to appear as soon as the church bell struck one o'clock in the morning, and the specter seemed to flit along the fields adjacent to Black Lion Lane. But apparently, in reality, it was pretty solid. I mean, physically, not that I think it's a solid fact that it's an actual ghost. I say that because it made actual contact with people, specifically women, and the descriptions are vague in some respects, but it smacks of sexual assault, if I can be so blunt. Just really gropey garbage, that kind of shit. Not to mention, it was said that the ghost was also jumping out and scaring and chasing children. Going after women and children, really respectable ghosts we've got here. Another reason I use the word solid is because this wasn't some filmy apparition type thing. It was clearly spotted, not wispy and fading into the night, all that. Nope, they got good looks at it. And it's described as looking like a tall man wearing a white sheet. Now, y'all know me. Simplest explanation. That's the one I go with. 
And if it looks like a tall man in a white sheet, well, it's probably a tall man in a white sheet. Okay, here's where things kick up a notch. There's no proper police department in Hammersmith at this time. So the citizens are like, we're done. This has to stop. And they do a neighborhood watch with militia flair because when they're going out on their patrols, they're armed. Pausing briefly, here's the disconnect for me. For those who honest to God think it's a ghost, what in blue hell good is a gun going to do you? I get it in the respect of, hey, this is some creeper dressing up in costume and attacking women. And if I catch him in the process, I might take a shot. But again, if you think it's an actual ghost, I don't get it. Whatever. So I give props to those who thought it was an asshole and wanted to protect others. But let's back up a touch. Let me tell you about the initial encounters and theories. It had started around November of 1803, and those physical attacks were mostly happening in and around the churchyard of St. Paul's Chapel of Ease, part of which is where, of course, people were buried in a cemetery. So there's a ghostly element. Plus, there had been a man who, the year before, had killed himself by cutting his throat, so that was still fresh on people's minds. One of my sources implies that this man was buried in that churchyard, and some believe that because of this, he was haunting them, as, quote, the contemporary belief was that suicide victims should not be buried in consecrated ground, as their souls would not then be at rest. One of the churchyard attacks reported was on a brewer named Thomas Groom, and he said that he was choked from behind, and he struggled with the attacker, and he had a friend with him, and friend says, quote, I gave a bit of push out with my fist and felt something soft like a great coat, and then apparently it lets loose of Groom, and Ghost takes off and disappears behind a row of tombstones. No mention if these guys chased after, sounds like they just got out of there, and I can't blame them. There was a report that an elderly woman was walking with another woman who was pregnant, and that they encountered the ghost and were, quote, seized by it, and that they were so scared that they both, quote, died of fright in their beds a few days later. One source says that. Another just says that two locals were close to death due to fright. I don't know if it's referring to those ladies, because then a separate source mentions a pregnant woman on her own, and that she, quote, crossed near the churchyard at around 10 o'clock in the evening and described a tall white figure rising from the tombstones that grabbed her as she ran away, which caused her to faint. She was discovered hours later by neighbors who took her home and put her to bed. The woman later was reported to have died from fright due to the event. This may be the same woman that in yet another source says about the ghost, quote, it had wrapped its spectral arms around a woman who fainted, according to another contemporary account. Kindly neighbors led her home, whereupon she took to her bed and never again rose. Then another place mentions that the wife of a locksmith had died of shock. So again, can't say if these are overlapping, if these are the same people, but regardless, like I said earlier, lots of gropey shits going on with women. There was a report that when seeing a ghost, a man driving a wagon, quote, pulled by eight horses and carrying 16 people, was so much frightened that the driver fled on foot, leaving the horses, wagon, and passengers at the scene. <laughs> and here's a particularly interesting sighting. One person who saw the ghost said that they'd also seen it, quote, discard a white tablecloth and run. Hmm. This was on December 29th, and it was a night watchman named William Girdler, and he sees it around Beaver Lane, and he takes off after it, it runs, then along the way is when it ditches the costume. But there's no mention of him, like, waiting for a minute, then going over there and seeing if the tablecloth was in the bushes, which I feel like would have been helpful, but fine, I wasn't there, not judging. I'm sort of judging. I'm ever so slightly judging. Let us fast forward to January of 1804, and let me tell you about Thomas Millwood. 23-year-old Millwood was a bricklayer, and he lived with his wife at his mother-in-law's house there in town. It just so happens that bricklayers at this time, and maybe still, I 
didn't look up current Britain bricklayer attire, so I failed you. But at this time, they wore all white, kind of like chefs, I guess. And because of this, he'd actually been mistaken for the ghost twice in the recent past when he was walking home from work at night. Quote, his all-white clothing had previously scared two women and a man in the West London churchyard. He told them he was no more of a ghost than any of them, reported the Newgate calendar. He asked the gentleman if he wished for a punch in the head. <laughs> I love it. And they got that from the mother-in-law's testimony. And I like the way that she puts it better. She said, quote, he said he had frightened two ladies and a gentleman who were coming along the terrace in a carriage for that the man dared to say, there goes the ghost. And he, talking about Thomas, said he was no more ghost than he was and asked the man using a bad word. Did he want a punch of the head? <laughs> that is so great. Oh, and by the way, that's not me saying bad word. That's what her testimony was. She didn't say what it was, what the bad word was. And I really want to know what the bad word was. But anyway, his wife had been like, Tommy, just change clothes before you leave work. You're scaring the shit out of people for no reason. But quote, Millwood insisted on maintaining the same outfit and quote, Millwood was obstinate in his nocturnal habit. His mother-in-law, Mrs. Phoebe Fulbrook, said she had advised Millwood that he should put on a greatcoat in order that he might not encounter any danger. As noted, though, he was, how did they put it, obstinate? And I get it. He's living with these two ladies who are pushing him about it. So this is his pushback to them. And on top of that, he thinks these people are idiots, that it's obvious he's not covered in a sheet. He's clearly wearing pants and a shirt, you know, so he ain't changing his damn clothes. They can get over it. You probably know what's coming. So like I say, the townspeople were getting fed up with this, some still thinking this was a ghost, but the ones who didn't formed the group I mentioned and organized shifts to patrol the streets. And quote, the village had so many lanes and paths leading in and out of it that it was difficult to cover every possible entrance and exit. And it sounds like because of this, they weren't able to pair up. It would just be one guy on their own in a given area. I understand, but still possibly not a good idea. Also possibly not a good idea, drinking on the job. Which brings me to 29-year-old Francis Smith, who doesn't sound like he was part of the town watch crew. We'll just call him a concerned citizen. We have now arrived on the night of January 3rd. And old Francis had, quote, spent the evening drinking in the White Hart Inn when he heard stories of women and children terrorized by the ghost. He was so incensed that he went home and returned with a loaded gun, saying he would act this night, go and try to meet the ghost, and shoot it. This is just, I just, y'all, I can't. This, uh. So, around 10.30, he runs into the watchman guy I'd mentioned before, Girdler, the one who had spotted a dude in a sheet tossing it away and done nothing about it. And Girdler says that Francis tells him he was going after the ghost. And Girdler's all, sure, appreciate the enthusiasm, but hey, my patrol shift ends in 30 minutes at 11, so hang tight and I'll come with you after that. Francis agrees. And then they decide that they'll split up, quote, in order to cover more ground. And they were conscious enough to arrange a watchword to ensure they did not shoot each other. Great. This is a big brain play. Except that Francis was a bit loaded. And I don't just mean the gun. Now, Millwood had been at his parents' house visiting them and his sister, then was walking back to his home along Black Lion Lane, which is where the parents and sister lived, and apparently he'd gone there straight from work because, per usual, Millwood's in his work duds. Quote, he was smartly dressed in the sort of clothes favored by men in his trade, linen trousers entirely white, washed very clean, 
a waistcoat of flannel, apparently new, very white, and an apron, which he wore around him. Other places said even his shoes were white. And it's late. It's dark. And quote, visibility was further impaired by tall hedges on either side of the lane so that a person on one side of the road could not distinguish an object on the other. Plus, if you've been pounding beers, I'd reckon that adds on. So Francis is heading down Black Lion Lane as well, and he spots this figure in white between those aforementioned hedges, and he yells out demanding it stop and identify itself. They're still near the family's house, and according to Anne, Millwood's sister, this was really close, like he had just left. And so she's still at the front of the house from walking him out. And she hears a man yelling, quote, damn you, who are you and what are you? Damn you, I'll shoot you. That's Francis. And Millwood turns around, but doesn't answer. He does start walking towards Francis, I assume to cuss him out if prior behavior is any indication of future behavior. But Francis didn't give him a chance to say anything. Quote, receiving no reply and seeing it continue to advance, he shot at it with his fouling gun. Sister Anne hears the shots and screams Millwood's name. She yells to her parents, then she runs out of the house and down the street and finds her brother laid out. Other people had heard the gunfire and came running too, one of whom was Girdler, and also a George Stowe, and a John Locke, who happened to be Francis's neighbor and had been with him earlier in the night. Quote, Locke said Smith had lost the bravado he displayed earlier at the White Hart Inn. In fact, he was in such an agitated state that he could scarcely speak and, accepting the consequences of his actions, asked to be taken into custody. Okay, I give Francis credit here. He knew he'd fucked up. So, a constable comes and arrests him. Meanwhile, they take Millwood's body over to the Black Lion Inn, and the next day, somebody named Hodgson, who is someone official, maybe the constable, I'm not clear on that, but the phrasing used is that a local surgeon named Mr. Flower was, quote, ordered to go examine the body by this guy. So I assume this Hodgson is the law in some form or fashion. And the subsequent testimony by Dr. Flower is as follows. Question. Did you examine the body of the deceased? Answer. Yes. It had a gunshot wound on the left side of the lower jaw with a small shot, which had penetrated the vertebra of the neck and injured the spinal marrow, which has a communication to the brain. I examined the brain, but there was no injury whatever to the brain itself. Question. What is your opinion with regard to this wound having been the cause of his death? Answer. I have no doubt that it was the cause of it. It is what we call necessarily a mortal wound. Basically, Millwood was, for all intents and purposes, dead before he hit the ground. There was no hope of resuscitation. Back to Locke for a second, because I want to tell you what he testified about that night, what Francis said immediately after the killing, because it plays into the legal stuff I'm about to get into. So Locke is asked what Francis said when he first arrived on the scene. And Locke goes, quote, he informed me he had shot a man who he believed to be the pretended ghost of Hammersmith. And quote, he seemed very much agitated. I told him what I thought of the consequence of firing. He said he had fired and did not know it was that person. All right. So let's break this down. Did he think it was a pretend ghost or didn't he? Did he think it was this dude because that's the legal issue at hand is it outright first degree murder or as they put it willful murder if you think it's a ghost or put another way if it's mistaken identity because one thing isn't in dispute francis very clearly went and got a gun and had the intent it doesn't sound like he thinks this ghost thing is real that he thought this run of encounters was with an actual person it also sounds like he panicked and that he knew he panicked and knew what he did was wrong. So which is it? Is it an accident or is it not an accident? Here's a good quote that sums up the legality of the issue. The Lord Chief Baron MacDonald, who is the judge of the trial, 
observed that Smith had neither acted in self-defense nor shot Millwood by accident. He had not been provoked by the supposed apparition, nor had he attempted to apprehend it. Millwood had not committed any offense to justify being shot, and even if the supposed ghost had been shot, it would not have been acceptable, as frightening people while pretending to be a ghost was not a serious felony, but a far less serious misdemeanor, meriting only a small fine. So after the coroner's inquest, they decide to charge him with willful murder, and Francis is pled not guilty by reason of mistaken identity. Trial starts on January 11th. Tons of testimony, and like I say, I'll link you to the transcript back at show notes if you want to check it out. The defense ends up calling 12 character witnesses for Francis, who are saying, you know, pleasant guy, hard worker, this seems really out of sorts for him, not a malicious person, all that. The jury is out for, quote, about three quarters of an hour when they returned a verdict of manslaughter. And the judge is like, nope, you can't downgrade. He's been charged with first degree murder. He's either guilty or he's not guilty. He says to them what I read to you just a second ago, and also, quote, the prisoner had no right to construe such misdemeanor into a capital offense or to conclude that a man dressed in white was a ghost. In this case, there was a deliberate carrying of a loaded gun, which the prisoner concluded he was entitled to fire, but which he really was not. And he did fire it with a rashness, which the law does not excuse. And all killing whatever amounts to murder unless justified by the law or in self-defense. In cases of some involuntary acts or some sufficiently violent provocation, it becomes manslaughter. Not one of these circumstances occur here. And the jury goes out again and come back and pronounce him guilty, which means a death sentence, death by hanging, followed by dissection, which means that the body would be donated to science, to medical students for studying anatomy, because there was something in Britain called the Murder Act of 1752 that allowed bodies of executed prisoners to be used for education. And... It was scheduled to happen the next Monday. It's said that Francis, quote, sank into a state of stupefaction, exceeding despair. And then, crying hysterically, Smith collapsed and had to be carried out of the courtroom. Now, having said all that, the judge also noted that since this case was so unusual and there was such public interest, he would be forwarding it to the Crown for review, which was unique in that this wasn't the defense doing this, and because he was sending it all the way to the top. So speaking for the U.S., best I can tell in terms of making a correlation here, defense attorneys would file an appeal and it'd go to lower courts and would snake its way up to ultimately the Supreme Court. But this would be like shooting it straight to the Supreme Court. And he did it fast. Before seven that evening, the Crown ordered a stay of execution while they reviewed. Then in three weeks, the sentence was reduced to one year of hard labor. And then on July 14, 1804, he received a full pardon. So he didn't even have to do the entire year. In the coming years, and by that I mean many, many years, this set a precedent and was brought up in other cases where someone was charged with assault or murder and the defense was mistaken identity, the whole thing about intent, the mens rea. Quote, the mental state of an accused person was rarely examined in 19th century trials, and much of the psychological terminology routinely used today had yet to be invented. Although some allowances were made for mistakes, common law could not accept that violent deaths simply happened by accident. In this case, legal opinion was that Smith had used excessive rather than reasonable force when he shot Millwood, regardless of his state of mind at the time. And this actually didn't get fully resolved in Britain for 180 years. In 1984, there was a case, the Crown versus Williams, and here's what happened. A man named Gladstone Williams saw another man dragging a younger man down the street, and the younger man was yelling for help. So Williams thinks he is witnessing an assault or kidnapping or something, and he goes and lays into the dude who's doing the dragging. 
But turns out the younger guy had just been caught robbing somebody and then running. And the man Williams thought was the assailant was actually apprehending a thief. So Williams ends up arrested and found guilty of assault occasioning actual bodily harm. Williams and his attorneys appeal and the conviction is overturned. The appeals court saying, quote, if the jury came to the conclusion that the defendant believed or may have believed that he was being attacked or that a crime was being committed and that force was necessary to protect himself or to prevent the crime, then the prosecution have not proved their case. And the decision was upheld by a higher court, and it later went into law under the Criminal Justice and Immigration Act of, get this, 2008. Holy moly. If we have any barristers or other legal eagles across the pond listening, please don't hesitate to holler at me if I've conveyed anything poorly. Okay, but what of the Hammersmith ghost? Let's hop back to 1804. It was never officially found out who was behind these assaults, and yet some places call them pranks, but I disagree. I'm going with assaults. However, shortly after Millwood got killed, a shoemaker named James Graham went to authorities, apparently out of guilt, and said he was the Hammersmith ghost. He told them that, quote, he had been annoyed by his apprentices frightening his young children with ghost stories, and in order to get his own back, he wrapped himself in a blanket one night and appeared before them as they passed homewards. No mention of the assaults, though, just the jump out and scare you routine, and just on one occasion, apparently. So who knows? Maybe the physical attacks was someone taking advantage of the ghost rumor going around. There's also no mention of if this Graham guy was charged with anything or punished. So, what do you think? Do you think Francis's sentence was fair? Do you think they should have kept the guilty verdict and him get hanged? Do you think he used excessive force? Write us. Let us know. And keep listening for the outro where we tell you how to get in touch with us. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed. And this is where the catchphrase goes. Thanks so much for listening. As a reminder, you can check out our sources for each of the episodes at show notes, along with any supplemental things we think you might enjoy. Visit us on our blog at youtotallymadethatup.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at YTMTU podcast and on Instagram at you totally made that up. Feel free to contact us on those platforms and you can also email us. That address is you totally made that up at gmail.com. Hey, listener, come closer. No, really, closer. Just a little bit closer. That might be too close. One step back. There. Okay. Perfect. Okay. You're yes. perfect. How do you feel about murder? How do you feel about spooky shit? And how do you feel about coffee? If you feel warmly toward any of these, then join us every Saturday on The Dark Roast. Join us, where our souls may or may not be darker than the coffee we drink. We can be found on Podcast Stitcher. Oh my fucking God. (laughs) We can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, and Google Play. Thank you.